Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hi there, I'm Randad Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Hey, everyone. Aaron Baldessari here. You've been hearing from my colleagues about different kinds of solutions as we all try to adapt to the future, some that are rooted in technology, others that require collective action or take political will. But when it comes down to it, change is personal. So today, I'm going to do something I don't do very often as a journalist. I'm going to tell you my own story. And this story starts with a house in the heart of fire country. The house is in a semi-rural community in California's Sierra Nevada foothills, and it's very Barbara. Barbara is my partner's mom, and she designed the house for her retirement. Outside, it's got a Mediterranean vibe with a tiled roof and orange walls. Inside, the rooms encircle an interior courtyard where one wall is robin's egg blue. Both my partner Jesse and his mom put a lot of love into the place. Barbara hand-painted all of the floor tiles, and Jesse built the hearth. And it just so happens that I grew up about a half-hour's drive from this house in Nevada County. Jesse and I met in the Bay Area about seven years ago, and it was this coincidence that immediately brought us together. So almost from the beginning, I started joining him on monthly trips up here to help his mom around the house by clearing brush, limbing trees, stacking wood, planting and pruning in the garden— and we'd always spend our evenings cooking. Dosas or dumplings or smoked salmon collar. At Christmas, Barbara always made a steamed persimmon pudding topped with brandy whipped cream, a cake so tender with a topping so rich that this child of the 1960s, a flour power loving Berkeley bred hippie could overlook the recipe's origins, the Reagan White House. When our daughter was born, Jesse told me how grateful he was that she would get to know his mother, something he didn't get to do because both of his grandmothers died pretty early. So when it came to visiting Barbara, we never missed a month. In July 2020, we hadn't heard from her in a few days. She was usually pretty quick to respond to our calls and text messages. So Jesse asked a friend to check in on her. It wasn't clear how long she had been lying on the floor. We were at the hospital a few hours later. She'd had a stroke. It paralyzed most of her body, and she was attached to what seemed like half a dozen machines. For 10 days, we took turns holding her hand. During that time, and in the weeks that followed after she passed away, it was the house that held us, because it held so much of her. When we eventually had to go back home to the Bay Area, we started talking about when, not if, we'd move up here for good. Because in our grief, hope had bloomed. A hope that our daughter could grow up here, playing in the same forest, 
picking fruit from the same trees, surrounded by the home her grandmother built. That summer, smoke from two dozen wildfires spread all over Nevada County and across California. On one particularly bad day, it blackened the sky and turned daylight to dusk. People called it the Orange Sky Day, and it really did feel like the end of the world. And that's when I first started to wonder whether it would be safe to move back to the Sierra foothills and what climate change would do to this little corner of the globe that Jesse and I love so much. Would all of our daughter's summers be filled with smoke? What kind of future would she inherit? So I set out to answer those questions, speaking with scientists and wildland managers, firefighters and neighbors and parents about the very real challenges ahead of us and how to confront them. And in doing that, I discovered this little community in the Sierra Nevada foothills has a lot to offer when it comes to how we think about climate change and what we can do about it. So today on the show, we're going to go there. This is Sold Out, Rethinking Housing in America, a KQED podcast where we reimagine what home should be. Stay with me. I have this memory, an image that feels imprinted in my mind, a thick column of gray and black smoke rising behind the house where I was born. The fire was so big, and it was coming on two sides of us. That's my mom, Kathy. The fire happened in 1988, and I was just over a year old at the time. Recently, I asked her about the fire. She showed me a photo from that day, and it's almost exactly how I remember it. When you see that photo, like, how does it make you feel when you see it? It brings up a lot of emotion. It brings up how scared we were and how all I wanted to do was to get you guys in the car and leave. I really didn't care. I mean, I cared if the house burned down, but I wanted you guys out of the area. I wanted us out. We were living in a little community called Lake Wildwood, about a 30-minute drive from where Jesse and his mom would eventually build their house. There were only two roads in and out of the place, and they were packed with cars. As we all sat in traffic, my parents remember hearing propane tanks exploding in the distance. Here's my dad, Mark. The smoke is so thick overhead. The whole time, I mean, you could see the ash falling from the sky. You could see the twigs coming down. It was scary, that's for sure. When we returned, what my dad remembers is the way the fire came through, jagged, like fingers on a hand, touching some houses, refusing others, sparing ours. And you, you kind of wonder, it's like, why, why did it spare that house and burn that one? It was called the 49er Fire because it broke out near Highway 49. It burned through nearly 34,000 acres and destroyed almost 150 homes, becoming the state's third most destructive wildfire at the time. And it had a huge impact on me. As a kid, I was hyper aware of fire safety. Fire was only one thing. Scary. But it wasn't until recently that I learned the 49er fire was also a major turning point for California and its wildland fire department. Jim Mathias is a former division chief for Cal Fire. He says the 49er fire ushered in a new era for the department as it grappled with a new problem. What to do? 
when forest fires tear through whole neighborhoods. It was a brand new concept. Nobody had ever really done it. Nobody really understood it. We didn't train for it. That's because during the 80s, when my family moved up to Nevada County, a lot of other families were doing the same all over the foothills of California. And as we did, the line between urban and rural began to blur. Yeah, it was, it was a very significant fire for CAL FIRE and wildland firefighting training in general. Today, more people than ever, one in three Americans in fact, live in these wildland areas. And as they do, wildfires become more destructive because there are simply more homes and more people in the fire's path. In the last 10 years, California has seen 18 of its 20 most destructive wildfires. And I wanted to know how climate change was factoring into all of that so I could figure out what the future might hold for me and my family. So I called up Patrick Gonzalez, a forest ecologist and climate change scientist at the University of California in Berkeley. Hi, Aaron. Thanks for your interest in talking. I wanted to get straight to it. How bad are things going to get? But Patrick tells me to slow down. It's really important, actually, to describe what has already occurred. He says California has a long history of suppressing fires, even natural ones. And that's led to a huge buildup of brush and trees in our forests that fuels fires. At the same time, climate change is intensifying the heat that drives wildfires. And now we're in this vicious cycle. Climate change causes more fire, emits more carbon, which makes climate change worse, which causes more fire. Could I really bring my kid into that? So I asked him, are we crazy to move back to Nevada County? And well, he tried to be diplomatic. It's prudent to, to not live in fire-prone areas. I'm not sure what I was expecting, but I could feel my stomach sink deeper as we talked. Even though I already sort of knew all of this, a big part of me just didn't want to admit it. But then Patrick threw me what felt like a life raft, a little glimmer of hope. To protect the homes that are already here and to prevent megafires from making climate change worse, there is something we can do, beyond cutting our carbon emissions, that is. It's something people have been doing up here for millennia, tending to the forest and reducing the risk of wildfires. And one of the main tools they used to do that was fire. You know, fire, 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 fire. Shelly Covert says that's all anyone wants to talk to her about these days, including me. She's the spokesperson for the Nevada City Rancheria Nisanan Tribe. Their unceded territory covers a huge area, including part of Nevada County. I understand people are losing their lives and entire towns are burning down. But how long the, the old Indian people from the beginning said, you can't not burn the land. It was unfathomable to them. I wanted to ask Shelley about this practice of periodically burning the land and the role fire played in their culture. She says before white settlers outlawed it during the gold rush, her relatives used fire to get rid of excess brush and bug infestations from trees, clear the land for hunting and travel, and promote certain kinds of plants. But perhaps more importantly, they used it for cremations. When Shelley first brought up this last point, I was wondering what it has to do with wildfires. She says it's everything. It is the kickstarter of all these other protocols that come into play that are respect for the land, respect for the animals, respect for the spirits, respect for one another. And that's it. 
It's the foundation that allows them to see themselves as both indebted to a place and responsible for it. We have thumbs, we can light fire, we can pull and tend the rubbish in the forest. That is our place on this planet. As a white person growing up in these same forests, I'd always seen nature as something that should be left alone. I had failed to recognize how much humans have always shaped the land. Shelley tells me that fire can still be a useful tool today, but it's not like we can go back to the way things once were. Our lives are just way different now. So I started looking around at how people are bringing good fire back to the land. And as it turns out, I didn't have to go very far. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. In late June, I drive out to Penn Valley, a little community on the western edge of Nevada County, where one homeowner is using fire to fight fire. I've heard a lot in recent years about using prescribed fire on public land, at national or state parks, but not so much about private properties. When I arrive, a half dozen guys in flannel shirts, blue jeans, and boots are milling about a dirt lot. Good morning. How's it going? We're at the top of a ridge right next to the house. It's a huge property, around 80 acres. Yeah, I don't know where these folks are. Told me 9 o'clock, so. <laughs> oh, they did? Oh, yeah. Okay. When the burn boss shows up, oh, okay. it just so happens it's someone I know, my old next-door neighbor, Tim Van Wagner. Shut the front door! <laughs> yeah, I feel like I haven't seen you in, like, 25 years or something like I that. I think really, so, right? yeah. I think so. He's arriving late because he had to swing by a neighborhood meeting where people had some concerns about the burn. It's just an ongoing conversation with people about why we're doing this, how the process works, what CAL FIRE's role in sanctioning these burns is, what California is encouraging. Officials from the governor down to local leaders are encouraging controlled burns. But it's foreign to most people, and so... There's, a, there's more of a fear response than a, like, understanding. And I totally get it. I've had Smokey the Bear drilled into my head my entire life. So even though fewer than 1% of controlled burns get out of control, I know I'd still have questions if someone was lighting one near my house. That's why you do extra diligence, you know. But you also have a team that you can trust. In the lot, 
Tim's team huddles around him. One of them is a former wildland firefighter. The others are landscapers, construction workers, and farmhands. One's a bartender. And they're all pretty much locals. Tim goes over safety reminders and logistics for the day. So let's just fill up our stuff, get our water backpacks full. Let's top off our engines with fuel and test them. Test the pumps, make sure we're good. They start at the top of a steep hill, a short walk from the house. The plan is to work their way down. Three guys hold drip torches, which have a little spout where the fuel comes out. The end of the spout is burning, so when the diesel hits it, it shoots little spots of flame onto the ground. As it touches the dry grass, my heart starts to race. Tim keeps his cool. So yeah, you're going to basically black out this little triangle here and then this little rock out topping. Three other people are roaming around with hoses and water bags. Another trio is posted at the control lines. And one guy is riding around the perimeter on a motorcycle, making sure the fire stays within its boundaries. Tim is busy on the radio, coordinating everyone's movements, but also taking time to train some of the newer guys on the team. This is obviously thin on the road here, so I'm actually going to just have you start right down to that corner and connect in over there. And checking the weather to make sure the conditions are still safe for them to keep burning. So we're at like 38 relative humidity right now. We're going to look at the uh, wind speed. This is pretty much what we'd expect right now. The fire moves slowly, creeping downhill. It casts off a thin white smoke, which is way different than any wildfire I've seen. When the smoke turns black and smells noxious, like burning chemicals. It's not the sort of intense smoke that comes from a forest fire because we're burning small fuels carefully. Daniel Nicholson helped set up the burn today. He's a wildland management consultant. He says this fire will not only reduce the risk of catastrophic wildfires, but by burning through invasive species and cycling nutrients into the soil, it'll help restore the native plants to the area. See this carrot-looking thing? And then there's a purple flower here and there. So um, the yampa and, and brodeas are all in here and are going to just love this fire, and they're going to be back. They're absolutely unscathed by this. I had hardly noticed the flowers amid this sea of otherwise dry, golden grass. And it makes me wonder what other plants I've missed because they've been crowded out. It takes the team a full eight-hour day to burn approximately 23 acres of a steeply sloped hillside. After they finished, I check in with Tim. How do you feel like it went today? Just a plan. Yeah, I can't, can't say anything more than that, except for it just was perfect and non-eventful in a good way. As I'm walking back to my car, I run into Fancy Fexer, who lives here with her husband and two kids. I never really thought about doing a controlled burn near Barbara's house until coming out here today. So I had to ask her, wasn't she a little nervous? What I worry about is afterwards, mostly. And what if the wind picks up and we're out doing something and there's something smoldering and it crosses a line? She moved up here from L.A. a few years ago. She says she and her husband fell in love with this piece of land where they could garden and raise animals. My kids are so happy, and that's why we did it. It's a place where we're raising really healthy humans to engage in this future. But Fancy says... Living up here means accepting some risk. It's the luck of the draw here, and that's something you have to live with. But the control you can have, I I mean, I feel so much better now that we did this. 
She hopes that in the long run, the work done here will make both her property and the surrounding community safer from megafires, and that it'll be more resilient for the climate changes to come. I don't love looking at a charred backyard, you know, but I know the point. We have to look in the future here. I leave Fancy's property feeling energized and excited. Watching good fire brought back to the land feels really empowering. But then, everywhere I turn, I see properties overloaded with brush and trees. And the task ahead, doing this stuff property by property, feels overwhelming. And I'm not alone. My neighbor, Mike Smith, had the same thought. He does a lot of work on his own property to keep it fire safe. And I realized it didn't matter. If my neighbors didn't do similar things, then my place was toast and it was a waste of time. Mike's house is at the top of a steep hill. And at the bottom of that hill, there's a small creek separating him from his neighbor. And his neighbor's property is densely forested. He doesn't want to do any tree cutting. What's his objection to that? Uh, Spiritual. (laughs) You're in San Juan. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, it's spiritual. If a fire were to come from that side, it would come roaring up to Mike's house. So I had a lumber company just come in and just clear it all the way down to the creek. But looking at the tinderbox next door, it still didn't seem like enough. So he reached out to the fire department. And that's when he learned about Firewise Communities. They try to promote neighborly cooperation. It's a national program, and it's completely voluntary. It encourages people to work on their own properties and come together for shared projects, like clearing brush along an evacuation route. And it's okay if not everyone participates. Because, according to the U.S. Forest Service, only about 30% of the land needs to be thinned to slow a fire down. So you have to show every year that as a neighborhood, you're doing good work as a neighborhood. Our neighborhood has been certified for a little over a year now. And Mike says it's gotten our neighbors to think differently. Private property exists in a neighborhood, and that neighborhood is in fact the organizing element, not private property. Nevada County has 94 Firewise communities, more than anywhere else in the country, which makes me feel pretty proud. Because the folks up here, a mix of hippies and rednecks, We don't all see eye-to-eye on presidential candidates or agree on the causes of megafires. But most people know what it feels like to step outside and smell smoke in the air. We're kind of isolated, and you better like your neighbors because, you know, your life may depend on it. Or learn to like them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, or learn to like them, exactly. Talking with Mike and thinking about the work our neighbors are already doing felt really reassuring. But there's something else that's been weighing on my mind, and it's all the other ways climate change is altering this landscape. The many burn scars and the dying trees. I'm wondering what it's going to be like to live and raise my daughter in a place where my own memories are constantly clashing with new realities. I'm carrying all these questions in my head when I pop into a meeting for the local fire district and bump into Sam Henricks, who sits on the board. It turns out she's been wrestling with the same questions, too. I know. I think about it with my son. And just to think about how the landscape is changing. Sam went to school out here with my partner, Jesse. We chat in the parking lot after the meeting's over. How's Jesse doing? How's it with him being at his mom's place? You know, it's kind of a solace in a lot of ways. Mm. 
the house is so her mm -hmm. that it just really, it's kind of a comfort, you mm -hmm. know? I tell Sam how much we love coming up here, but I still have some doubts. So I've been here now for 35 years. I've seen the changes, but also I have a lot of hope. Can I interview you for this story? <laughs> uh, yeah, you can interview me for this story. Yeah. About a month later, I drive out to Sam's place to talk about how she came to terms with living in fire country and what's giving her hope for the future here. She lives three miles down a long gravel road surrounded by forest. I take a spur that drops me down into a semicircle of four or five buildings. Her house is a single story with a peaked roof. There's a picnic table and a whole bunch of kids' toys. We grab a seat outside. Sam used to work as a volunteer firefighter and in land management. She's hyper-aware of their risk out here. I do look at those climate maps and I see where the danger zones are. And I think about fire every day, all the time. She's watched the pine trees around her house turn brown from bark beetles that thrive in hotter weather and overproduce, killing the trees they feed on. It's something she wants her son to see so he can learn what to do about it. And I'm like, okay, we're going to cut down the pines and the cedars because they're going to want to be further upslope where it's cooler. And the black oaks are doing really well here. Let's see what, what trees are doing really well already. These changes to the landscape, it's something I'm still wrestling with as I talk with Sam, a loss I haven't quite accepted. Because I've read the research. As the planet heats up, the shrubs and brush of Southern California will slowly migrate north. And the pine trees, the trees I think about when I think of growing up here, they are some of the most threatened. And there's so much grief there, right? Because we've had it so good in our life. Yeah. We've had it so good, and we didn't pay attention to that. One way Sam works through that grief is by getting her son involved in tending the land. I just want to give him skills for resilience and just that noticing what needs to happen. Noticing what needs to happen is a skill Sam developed from growing up out here. Her parents were drawn to this particular corner of the Sierra foothills in part because it had a reputation for a different style of living, one that was baked into the neighborhood when it first began forming in the 1970s, when a group of hippies moved out here following the counterculture poet Gary Snyder. His back-to-the-land philosophy advocated for slow growth. So a lot of the residents started out as homesteaders. They've never been connected to the utility grid, and neither is Sam. We have a solar system which supports our two cabins, and those have a propane generator backup. There's a separate solar system for their water pump, which slowly fills two big tanks. Which are gravity-fed, so there's no electricity needed. Being out here feels both like stepping back in time and also a bit like stepping into the future because they seem to have figured out a way to live here more sustainably. This is what the United States could do. You know, my neighbors have a microgrid. They've had a microgrid for 50 years. They have a shared water system for 50 years. Those are the types of changes that can be implemented in small scales in suburbia. Sam says living off-grid and tending to the forest this way influences her relationship to the land, forcing her to adapt to changes in the climate. Her ability to continue living out here depends on it. It's really important to see ourselves as part of the ecosystem because then you're part of a system. Your actions matter, and not just in a negative way, 
our actions can be positive and supportive. And that, that's the shift that's got to happen. When I started this project, I really didn't think my family should move to Barbara's place in the foothills. The science is so clear. Warmer temperatures mean bigger swings from drought to flood, more wildfires, more risk. And it's also heartbreaking knowing how this landscape is changing. The memories I have growing up here of staring up at towering pine trees and spending smokeless summers outside. They won't be my daughter's memories. Still, I can't ever imagine selling this house and walking away. We care too much about it, about the land, and about this community to abandon it. So this October, after we got some early rain and we knew the risk of big fires had gone way down, we started doing what we do every year, limbing trees. But this time, I brought my four-year-old along with me. Together, we gathered the limbs from the ground to stack in our woodshed. We loaded them up in her John Deere Power Wheels tractor. Here, time to go. When she's tall enough to wield it, I'll teach her how to use our weed wrench to pull scotch broom, an invasive plant that happens to be super flammable. In the spring, I'll put her on my lap as I drive our actual tractor to mow down annual grasses. And hopefully one day, we'll both learn how to put good fire on the ground. There's something liberating about doing this work, which is so tied to the seasons and to the land. It feels like an act of defiance. The same could be said of choosing to live here, or any place like it, that's poised on the knife's edge of a changing climate. Making that choice means bluntly confronting the reality of those changes. It means accepting that catastrophic wildfires will come our way. And it means doing what we can to make this place livable, now and in the future. I don't know when, but I do think we'll move up here to Barbara's place one day. Until then, we'll keep coming back month after month, and year after year, we'll keep tending it. That's it for our show today. You've been listening to Sold Out, Rethinking Housing in America. A big thank you to you, our listeners, for subscribing and leaving all of those wonderful reviews. And an even bigger bow of appreciation to our indomitable editors, Erica Kelly and Kevin Stark, as well as the whole housing and science teams here at KQED. That team includes climate reporters Ezra David Romero, Laura Clivens, and Danielle Venton. And our housing reporters, Vanessa Rancaño and Aditi Banlamudi. This episode was written and reported by me, Aaron Baldessari. I cover housing here at KQED, and I've been your humble host. Sold Out is a production of KQED. Jen Chien is our contributing editor. Brendan Willard is our sound engineer. And Cedric Wilson wrote our theme song. Melissa Gray is our amazing vocal coach. Thank you to the entire KQED podcast team, including Katie Sprenger, Cesar Saldana, and Maha Sanad. And of course, a very special thanks to our former co-host and co-creator, Molly Solomon. She's still at KQED and an editor now, and we couldn't be happier for her. Our senior leadership team includes Otis Taylor Jr., Ethan Tovin Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. Thanks so much for listening.
Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.